0: Have you ever considered how strange Christmas really is? And I'm not just talking about the weird, syncretistic blend of sacred and secular traditions that we have today, which has shaped our culture's celebration of the season. Like, we now have a holiday that seems to be all about an old guy with a big beard and a red suit Based on an old Christian saint who now flies through the air on a sleigh drawn by reindeer, one with a glowing nose, filled with toys made by elves at the North Pole. We also seem to have a sort of winter solstice celebration of of snow and chills in the air and ugly sweaters, because, baby, it's cold outside in this winter wonderland, so let it snow. This season also seems to be a celebration of family, friends, parties, feasting. Throw in some combination of lights and candles, wreaths and garland, jingle bells, catchy songs, candy canes, sugar cookies, greeting cards, grinches, elves on shelves, sugar plums, movie marathons, presents wrapped under evergreen trees, and a partridge in a pear tree. Like, if you stop and think about it, it's bizarre. To say the least, it's strange. But as I said, I'm not just talking about this mishmash of of random people and objects and celebrations. I'm talking about the original Christmas story. And the apparent oddness of it. My family was recently watching a Christmas-themed TV show that came out this year, and in it, two aliens from another planet come to Earth and get caught up in the festivities. They get really excited about everything fun and jolly that they see around them. But then there's this blink-and-you-miss-it scene where they're standing in front of a a nativity scene, and Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, and, and they're just staring at it. Their faces are scrunched up and this quizzical expression like, what in the world is this? Then they essentially shrug their shoulders and move on. When you stop and think about the original Christmas story, it can appear quite strange too. Like, Why would we celebrate this nondescript birth of a baby to a small-town Jewish family born in a barn in Palestine 2,000 years ago, surrounded by this cast of misfit characters from farm animals to angels to shepherds to wise men. Even if that doesn't sound strange to you today, it definitely does to the world around us. And understandably so. But the strangeness of Christmas doesn't mean that we should just stay confused about it, nor does it mean we should just shrug our shoulders and move on. No, the strange, unusual uniqueness of Christmas should actually draw our hearts to marvel. Christians shouldn't be embarrassed by it, but amazed by it. We can freely admit that it is strange... For in its uniqueness lies its power. I'll invite you to see what I mean by opening up a Bible with me. And we'll turn to Matthew 1, which is the first page of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seats in front of you. And the page number that it's on is on the screen to help you find it. When the, in this passage, we will see, really, history change overnight. Or really over. Nine and a half months of a mysterious pregnancy. So Matthew chapter 1, and I'll be reading starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, or pregnant from the Holy Spirit, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, there is nothing strange about a surprise, untimely pregnancy. And many people have been careless in the heat of passion or been abused sinfully, resulting in many a baby being conceived in at inopportune or inappropriate times. So that's not surprising. What is strange about this situation is that it was neither of those scenarios. Mary had neither been unfaithful nor violated. And yet here she was, pregnant. This was more than strange or unusual. It was unheard of. Unprecedented never before seen in history. And that meant it would, it would have been inconceivable. And I do know what that word means. What I think we can easily see here is that Christmas is strange in its unparalleled, miraculous nature. Christmas is strange in its unparalleled, miraculous nature. Like, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. Imagine that you're a guy who's engaged to be married, and your fiance shows up at your carpenter's shop one day looking really nervous. And you ask, What's wrong? She sheepishly whispers, I don't understand everything about how this happened. Like, please don't get angry, Joseph. But I'm pregnant. Your smile fades. Your jaw drops in horror as you haven't come together yet. So you know for a fact that this baby is not yours. But you know the whole community would assume it is. Goodbye reputation. And what would this mean for Mary? Oh, Mary. How could you? Your mind is so overwhelmed that you barely register Mary trying to explain some, some nonsense about an angel visiting her and saying this would happen. You maybe think, oh, oh, come on, don't bring God into this to try to cover it up. She says she conceived without another guy involved. Inconceivable. So you think, what do I do? What do I do? What can I do? Like, I could go public with Mary's ridiculous story in order to save face myself, but then she'd become a pariah, an unholy outcast, forever tarnished. Like, I obviously have to call off the wedding and and distance myself from her, but maybe I can do so quietly so she's not overly shamed or disgraced. And the Bible says that this is what Joseph decided to do because he was a just or an honorable guy. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But then, God sends an angel to correct him, basically saying, yes, it's an unheard of situation, but Mary's not wrong. This is something special. well, kind of. Actually it was impossible. Mary had her own stunning angelic encounter first, and she was just as incredulous. She was, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he says, For nothing will be impossible with God. With man, this was impossible. But With God, not impossible anymore. With God... The supernatural and the miraculous is more than possible. It's inevitable. And the virgin birth was really the first of, of many numerous miracles associated with Jesus' life on earth. And for many people in our world, maybe including you, it's a tale beyond plausibility. You'd sooner believe that water could flow uphill, or that rocks could fly. A virgin birth, outside of artificial means today, is physically impossible. It's basic science. However, as University President and Professor Guy Richard reminds us, all it takes for supernatural events to be possible is for a supernatural God to exist all it takes. C.S. Lewis goes beyond this, saying that once we allow for God's existence and activity, supernatural events are not just possible, but they're to be expected. And I love how Dane Ortland puts this idea, paraphrasing theologian Jürgen Moltmann, says Miracle, miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Miracles are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. However, concluding that something is hypothetically possible is different from believing it actually happened. Which is what the Bible claims. Scripture tells us that not only that a, that a virgin could give birth, but that she did give birth. Verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This actually happened in space and time to a young Jewish woman named Mary. Do you find that difficult to believe? I can understand why. So why can we trust the Bible that it was telling the truth here? Or even why can we trust that Mary was telling the truth? Well, I believe that we can trust the veracity and the historical reliability of the Bible for many reasons. But I'll just give you one for today. Let's talk about prophetic fulfillment. Okay, prophetic fulfillment. See, this says that Jesus' birth was actually prophesied or predicted to happen 700 years prior to this. It's said in verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a prophecy from Isaiah the prophet found in Isaiah 7.14, which is historically proven to have been written down long before Jesus' time. And then centuries later, we get a young virgin and her scandalized husband-to-be receiving messages from angels telling them that what is conceived in her is from God, the Holy Spirit. What do the prophecies say? That a virgin would give birth to a son called God with us, So, the child to come would have to be human, born of a woman, of a virgin, and divine, to be God with us. Therefore, he couldn't just enter the world like every other child. It had to be different. His birth had to be special, unlike any other birth. Strange, if you will. Or else this prophecy would not be fulfilled. And Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. Perhaps you'd hear that and say, well, that's just a lucky guess. Or a really big coincidence. Or maybe you suppose that the early Christians just arbitrarily linked two events together in order to prove their point. Like this is just confirmation bias. And if this were the only prophecy that Jesus fulfilled... I'd probably agree with you. But what if Jesus fulfilled more than one prophecy? What if he fulfilled dozens of them? Because that's what he did. Born from the highly specific ancestral line of Abraham, Judah, and David. Born in Bethlehem. Lived for a time in Egypt. Preceded by an Elijah-like character. Grew up in Galilee. And that's all before he became an adult, when things got really wild. Biblical historians say that Christ fulfilled between 50 and 300 Old Testament prophecies. And the odds of a mere eight of these prophecies being randomly fulfilled by one man is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros after it. It's mathematically incomprehensible. Roughly, it'd be like covering all of Ontario with toonies half a meter deep, and then marking one coin out of those, and then asking a blindfolded man to walk across the province and pick up the one coin and find your coin on the first try. See, the strangeness of Jesus' unparalleled birth actually lends credence to the story. It makes the whole thing far more likely, if not proven, to be true. And believe it or not, Christians believe that the greatest miracle of Christmas wasn't the virgin birth. Nor was it the multiple fulfilled prophecies The greatest miracle was the incarnation itself, the infinite God, creator, who is spirit, wrapping himself in finite physical human flesh, becoming one of his own creations. How this is possible and the implications of it, we can't even fathom. Is this not working? No, it's not. Check, check, check. Coming through? Oh. Might be a a short. Okay now? I don't want to use that, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) If you can hear me, I'll keep going. So how the incarnation is possible, the the implications of it, we can't even fathom. But the truth is that everyone is clinging to some form of faith in the impossible right now. Everyone. For example, the popular and sometimes controversial professor and author Jordan Peterson has admitted being drawn toward the Christian faith even if he hasn't professed Christ yet. And why? Because he recognizes that all humans have forms of faith no matter what. He said in one interview this, I've got the choice of believing two impossible things. I can either believe that the world is constituted so that God took on flesh and was crucified and rose three days later, or I can believe that human beings invented this unbelievably preposterous story that has stretched into every atom of culture. And it isn't obvious to me that the second hypothesis is any easier to believe than the first. Because the more you investigate the manifestations of the story of Christ, the more insanely complicated and far-reaching it becomes. Another author, Glenn Scrivner, likewise comments, We all have impossible faith positions then. How should we break the deadlock? Well, it's worth remembering that the impossible, enduring influence of the Jesus story has, in fact, happened. A man on a cross has made our Western world. At this point, even the staunchest rationalist is left with an absurdity. But the Christian can come along with an explanation. That the reason a man on a cross has made our world is because he is our maker. God himself. In the end, everyone is a believer, everyone has absurdities to own, and everyone must account for the incomparable impact of Jesus Christ. Or as Scrivener says elsewhere, along similar lines, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. Now we can hear all of this and we can still choose to reject the news of Jesus' miraculous birth. But something happened that night 2,000 years ago that defied explanation. We believe that an absolute miracle took place. Joseph couldn't believe it at first. But he came to accept it. And so should we. But why would God even do this? Why intervene in history? Because we believe that he knew how much we desperately needed him. And he inexplicably loves us. Like we saw earlier, this world is not the way that God designed it to be. He wanted us to to live in the perfection, the fullness of, of supernatural life with Him. But then evil and sin broke into that original natural order. And thus we lost the connection, the close relationship we had with God. And our world was plunged into suffering and futility and death. In sending Jesus to earth, God was putting a plan into motion to restore his creation. In doing so through a virgin, he was showing that we could never produce salvation ourselves. We needed God himself to intervene. Like Joseph and Mary couldn't generate a miracle. None of us could. Jesus came as a gift from heaven, which is just how we must receive him. As Michael Reeves puts it, the virgin birth is an almighty no to all our silly attempts at earning salvation. Can't do it. And Jesus was being sent to live the perfect, fully perfect life as a human being, which we fail to do. By being virgin born, he actually avoided the inherited sinful nature from Adam. And he came to die then as a perfect sacrifice, taking our place under God's judgment and finally miraculously rising from the dead, offering new and eternal life to all who would believe in him and follow him. And Jesus isn't just true. He's so gracious, gentle, and loving, and powerful, and beautiful. No matter who you are today, a longtime churchgoer, someone who just shows up on holidays, someone sitting here in front of me or watching from your couch at home, look at the birth of Jesus and stare today. It's okay to be puzzled at first, but let the strangeness pique your interest, provoke your questions. In the book of Acts in the Bible, some people heard Jesus being preached about and they said to the preacher, you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. You wish to know what these things, these strange things, really, ultimately mean. Christmas means... That life isn't hopeless, meaningless, or purposelessness. Christmas means that Jesus has come to save his people from their sins, so we can live free from guilt and shame. Christmas means that the supernatural is real. Even breaking in upon us in the kingdom of God Christmas means that history is headed someplace, and that place is unimaginably glorious. Christmas means that God isn't far off from us, but that he's God with us, near us now. Even in our grief, in our pain, in our loneliness, in our failures, God is with us. So may we all draw near to him today, accepting the truth, knowing his love, and receiving his life. Maybe even for the first time, confess Jesus as Lord on Christmas Day. <laughs> I'd love to help you with this. Come talk to me, reach out to us online, talk to the friend or family member that you came with. Like, don't put this off, receive the gift of heaven today. But as we consider the strangeness of Christmas, we may still have a nagging question in our minds. That's if this story is true, why would God carry out his plan in this manner, in this way? Why couldn't he have done it all in a non-strange way that makes more sense? Like, why did he send his son into the middle of a potential scandal? That's risky. Or why not send him to a more notable or noble family where he could have been better known from the beginning, better respected, better believed, better followed? Or why announce his arrival to to peasant shepherds and not to everyone on earth? (laughs) Like, if nothing's impossible for God, surely he could have done that. In the face of Really, the, the strange manger, he can have so many questions. and We can even think, you know, if, if I was writing the Christmas story, I would have written it differently. But it's in this strangeness, this foolishness, if you will, that we encounter the power of God. See, it's true that Christmas is strange in its seemingly foolish nature. Christmas is admittedly strange, and it can seem downright foolish to us, and maybe, just maybe, that's part of the point. I want to direct your attention to one other passage in the Bible before we close. You can flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles here, I believe that's page 952. See, the story of Christmas doesn't end at the stable, doesn't end out in the shepherd's fields, or even with the wise men. It carries on through Jesus' life until that baby in a manger became a man hanging on a cross. And then we can be even more baffled. Like, why would God's plan culminate with the hero dying? We think there's got to been a better way to save the world. 1 Corinthians 1 corrects us. Look at it with me. In verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly, or foolishness, to those who are perishing, but thus who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you get what this is saying? It's saying that God intentionally chose to do things in a way that appears foolish in order to confound human wisdom in order to show how much more powerful and wise and marvelous he is than us. And to show that those who accept it, those who believe it, those who commit to Christ as Lord, this strange story of Christ becomes the power of God to us, the wisdom of God to us, power to save us and sanctify us, secure us until we meet the Lord face to face, wisdom to open our eyes, to teach us, to correct us, to transform us. Pastor Tim Keller has rightly observed that if our goal was that 2,000 years from now 75% of the human race would know our name and 25% would center their entire lives around us, that our body of teaching will be the most influential in history and that whole civilizations will be built on our vision for flourishing, then our strategy would not include being born among farm animal urine in a stable in a little town in the middle of nowhere. Our strategy would not include spending our entire life outside all the networks of economic, political, and academic power, get no credentials, then get executed early in our career as an absolute disgrace. And yet, this is the strange, wonderful, marvelous way that God chose to do things. This is the way he broke into history and changed it forever. He chose the foolish and the weak to display his wisdom and his power. Consider the well-known Greek or Roman gods of that day. Whenever they allegedly showed up on earth, they did so with power and Storms and weapons, and the message was everyone should fear us, bow, tremble, or else. How strange it must have sounded on the streets of the Roman Empire when a different God began to be preached one who came not in grandiosity and vanity. But in obscurity and humility. The strangeness would have made Jesus stand out in shockingly attractive ways. This was the highest God stooping low in love, the all powerful becoming weak and small, the richest becoming poor. As Glenn Scrivener declares, when this God appears, he comes to draw near. And he did this not just for his own sake, but for our sake. Small and lowly and insignificant us. Look at verse 26 here in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, for consider your calling brothers... Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. In other words, we were pretty foolish people to say from a human perspective. We weren't powerful people. Not many of us were noble or strong. And yet that's how Jesus came to us. Continue on, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So God chose the weak. Like What's weaker than a newborn baby? God chose what's low. What's lower than a feeding trough in a barn? Well, there is one thing this would tell us. A wooden cross at Calvary. Man being crucified. It can all seem so strange. It definitely appears foolish to the world. But in coming like this, Jesus put the wisdom of the world to shame. And why did he do this? Did you see? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, so that no one who comes to Jesus can think or claim that we did it ourselves. As if we earned his love or his grace by how impressive or how smart we are. Never! We, we needed this baby lying in a manger. We needed this man dying on a cross. We needed this man flying out from a sealed tomb. We need the king of heaven now. Verse 30 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. let's praise him today. Let's boast only in him. Let's move from quizzical or confused to dumbfounded and awestruck. That the wisdom of God would dream up such a breathtaking plan. And listen, because of what Jesus did at Christmas, God himself no longer needs to seem strange to us. We can see Christ and know exactly what God is like. My favorite Christmas song of all time, you may or may not know it, called Welcome to Our World, contains a line that goes, hope that you don't mind our manger, how I wish we would have known. But long-awaited holy Stranger. Make yourself at home. It's true. When he appeared, he was a stranger to us. No wonder it seemed strange. But through Christmas, Jesus was intentionally not staying a stranger. He became one of us, he made himself at home among us. God drew near. So despite the strangeness, he is no stranger. May we truly see him today, know him, and love him, and boast in him alone. Father, may that truly be the case in us, in our hearts today. Whether we've known you for years, or whether we just come to you for the first time today, may you, Open our eyes, open our hearts to receive you as our King and our Lord today. For you are worthy. We boast in you today. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.